welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. On this bonus episode of Plenary Session, we're going to talk about PFS, PFS, PFS. This is paired now with an article out in JAMA Oncology. You won't want to miss it. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Michael Rafel joining me via Skype to discuss an article that came out today, September 26, 2019, in JAMA Oncology. Dr. Rafel, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing? It's good to have you on the podcast. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a very big fan of the show. I'm an avid follower of you on Twitter. I'm a student of your research, so thank you so much for having me. You're a true plenard. (laughs) <laughs> I am indeed. <laughs> well, we really appreciate that uh, anyone anyone listens to the show more than once. So thank you so much for, for joining. Tell the listeners a little bit about you. So I know, of course, most recently, uh, you were with the good folks at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. But tell a little bit about your background, where you went to medical school and where you did your oncology training. So I have a bit of an unusual path getting me here to be an oncologist. Uh, I started off at Queen's University, actually, for my medical school, which is where I first met uh, Dr. Booth. Uh, I then came to the University of Toronto and actually did a year of an anesthesiology residency uh, prior to making the decision uh, to switch into internal medicine wow. and ultimately to pursue a path in medical oncology. And so I did all of that training at the University of Toronto. Um, and then I went back uh, last year to Queens to work with uh, Dr. Booth to do an advanced cancer health services research methodology fellowship. And uh, as luck would have it, a, a job opened up back in Toronto, and, and I've come back to Sunnybrook now, where I am a medical oncologist, a clinician investigator. Um, about 60% of my time is devoted to research and 40% to clinical care. And I, in my clinical practice, I uh, subspecialize in the care of patients with advanced GI cancers. Wow. Okay. So, so you've been, but a lot of your time been in Ontario province. All of my training has been in Ontario province. Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Good. And now you are a GI oncologist. That so they tell me. So they tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, after a few years, you will. It will be in your DNA. So <laughs> great to have you here. Um, let's let's jump in and start talking about your paper. The this is entitled. This is out now, Jam Oncology, September 26. The value of progression-free survival as a treatment endpoint among patients with advanced cancer, a systematic review, and qualitative assessment of the literature. And you are first author here, and you're joined by some people I know, Dr. Booth and, and Dr. Eisenhower. Um, and, and who's the last author of this paper? 
so this is Dr. Brundage. Dr. Brundage is a radiation oncologist. He's an extremely talented health services researcher, and he's currently the head of uh, the Cancer Care and Epidemiology Division at Queen's University. Wonderful. Okay, so before we jump in, let's just give listeners a little bit of uh, just a total layperson summary, which is that progression-free survival is a common endpoint in cancer clinical trials. There's no doubt about that. And it didn't always, it didn't used to be the case that it was a common endpoint. It's really gained prominence uh, more and more and hand-in-hand with the industry involvement in oncology. And so what is progression-free survival? Uh, One, it is uh, typically uh, shown in randomized control trials, the improvement in progression-free survival. So there's a control group. I heard somebody say, you don't need a randomized control trial to, to show an improvement in PFS. I, I raised an eyebrow saying, well, what are, you, what are you getting the baseline PFS for? Okay, but that's another issue. Progression-free survival is the time from when you enroll in a randomized control trial until you either pass away or experience progression, one of two things. And progression typically is defined in solid tumor oncology as growth of target lesions more than 20% from the smallest they ever were, which is a mouthful, or new lesions on the scan. So it's really the time until one of three things happens, death, new lesions on the scan, or growth of the target lesions 20% from the smallest they ever were. Okay, you're nodding your head, so you say that's a fair definition, it's a composite primary endpoint. It's an excellent definition. It's a composite time to event endpoint, as you've said. And as you mentioned, there are three factors that would contribute to satisfying the PFS endpoint and getting a patient to tick on that Kaplan-Meier curve. It's death, radiographic progression, or symptomatic progression. And uh, I would argue, and I think you would agree with me, that only two of those endpoints uh, are really clinically meaningful to patient, death and symptomatic progression. Right. Um, And I wouldn't want to scoot myself too much because I do have some research that's coming out soon, but you can guess which endpoint of the three is most often uh, used to satisfy the PFS endpoint. Oh, okay. Yes, we can, we can, we can always wonder which of the three is the most likely driver, but we all probably have a guess. Um, Okay. So, so tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what did you do in this study and what did you find? Yeah, I, th- I think a little bit of history uh, as to how the study came about provides some context, um, because to me, it's almost as interesting how successful research projects uh, arrive, because they have their own evolutionary story of their own. Mm-hmm. And this is a story that goes way back before my time with Dr. Booth at Queens. And it, and it starts with one of the authors on this paper, a legendary oncologist, Dr. Elizabeth Eisenhower. Um, and for many years, she was uh, leading the investigational new drug group uh, at the Canadian Cancer Trials Group. And she, uh, as uh, astute listeners of plenary session will know, was part of the original international working group, which defined the RESIST criteria, and ultimately was the lead author on RESIST 1.1, published in 2009. Mm -hmm. And as um, you you introduced before, there are really four categories of RESIST. A complete response, just as it sounds, all the cancer spots have gone away. Uh, Partial response, you have 20%, or pardon me, 30% decrease in the sum of the diameters of the lesions. Yes. Stable disease, nothing changes. And progressive disease, 20% increase in the sum of the diameters of the target lesions. Yes. And you get an objective response if you have either a complete response or a partial response. Um, and But it's important before we talk about this paper to understand what the original intent of RESIST was. You've talked about on your podcast how those numbers came about yes. with uh, Charles Mortel. Yes having a group of surgeons feel a, a nodule underneath a gel pad to see when they could determine there was a difference. Yes, foam um, rubber, I hear. <laughs> yeah. Foam rubber. Yeah. 
very simply, RESIST was designed to describe changes in tumor size in response to therapy in order to aid in identifying signals of early phase drug development activity. It was designed to help identify drugs that should be carried on to larger clinical trials. Yes. It was never, ever, ever designed or never intended to suggest that a tumor that shrinks by 30% would result in a clinically meaningful benefit to patients. Right. So that's the first part of the story, Dr. Right. Eisenhower, pioneer oncologist. Then comes in my good friend and mentor, Dr. Chris Booth. Um, in his residency, as I actually think he talked to you about on your plenary session podcast with him, uh, he had sort of an epiphany moment that defined his career when he was working with another legendary oncologist, Dr. Tannock. Um, and I believe that Dr. Tannock had recommended to a patient to prescribe a certain medication rather than another. I believe it was tamoxifen versus robotazin. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Dr. Booth said, well, haven't you read the latest study that suggests we should use an astrazole? Um, and Dr. Tannock remarked something to the effect of young oncologists are increasingly impressed by trivial gains um, that may not have any clinical benefit for patients. Yeah. And that set off an influential paper that Dr. Booth published. And that was his uh, paper in JCO in 2008, where he looked at the evolution of randomized trials over three decades. And in that paper, one of the main findings that he found was that there had been a shift from using definitive endpoints like overall survival to an explosion in the use of progression-free survival as an endpoint. Yes. That leads to part three, and the imminent next step is, is the discussion of our paper, I promise. Yeah. Um, but part three was the bright blue waters of Kingston, Ontario. <laughs> the wind sailing, windsurfing, the sailing, and the hipster lifestyle brought Dr. <laughs> Booth down to Queens, <laughs> where he met Dr. Elizabeth Eisenhower, and they were both alarmed by the increasing use of PFS as an endpoint. So they published a very interesting and a very controversial piece in JCO in 2012 called PFS, Meaningful or Simply Measurable. Yeah, I love that paper. Uh, yeah, Wonderful paper. And they, there's one line in it that I wrote down for the listeners because I think it's just so impactful. They say, the last few years have seen an increase in the number of randomized control trials of new agents and metastatic solid tumors using progression-free survival as the primary endpoint. Some trials showing improvement in PFS without a corresponding increase in overall survival have led to the approval of new drugs and or changes in standard of care. And this is back in 2012. Yeah. This suggests a growing belief in oncology that delaying progression in metastatic disease is a worthy goal, even if overall survival is not improved. But is a new treatment that improves PFS really in advance for patients or is it only lowering the bar to declare active some of our much-heralded new molecular-targeted therapies? And so what happened was uh, Chris and Elizabeth got a lot of pushback on this paper, as I think some of your um, uh, comments have gotten pushed back when you've pushed back against progression-free survival yeah. on Twitter and in your papers. But one criticism stood out to Chris and Elizabeth. Someone said to them, it doesn't matter that a drug only prolongs PFS and doesn't benefit OS. PFS matters to patients, and therefore, it's a meaningful endpoint. And now, Chris, as a young oncologist, a burgeoning young Ian Tannock, said, oh, really, show me the evidence. Mm -hmm. And that was the impetus for the work we've done. Mm -hmm. um, so to tell you one more piece, um, Dr. Brundage, the senior, off this, senior author of this paper, uh, has just recently completed a pilot trial with Chris, Elizabeth, another oncologist named Dr. Robinson, where they took 20 patients with advanced metastatic cancer and they did qualitative interviews and they used time trade-off methodologies. And they basically said to patients, 
your overall survival, if I treat you with this drug, will be X. Yeah. Any drug treatment that you get will not help you live any longer. Mm -hmm. You can take this medication, and it may help prolong the time before the cancer grows on CT scans, but it will not help you live any longer. Yeah. And overwhelmingly, patients said, I don't care what happens on my CT scan. All I care about is about living longer and living better. Wow. But that contrasted with what we found in the literature as our background reading. There are a number of studies that suggest PFS is of value to patients. Mm -hmm. So that was the history behind why we wanted to do this project, where we performed a systematic review and a qualitative assessment of the literature to see how are they asking these questions to patients, and do patients truly understand progression-free survival? Yes. So that's a long introduction, and, and I apologize if I lost any listeners in that short uh, segment, but... What we did is we did a systematic review and we identified 17 studies that represented 3,600 patients with advanced cancer. Wait, before you go, let me, let me just summarize your points to see if I agree. Yes. Let's see if yes. I got them all, which I think are great points. One, when we adopted the changes in tumor size that we consider response and progression today, we did so based on what happened to a bunch of people feeling spheres through foam rubber many decades ago. And it was initially intended to screen for promising anti-cancer compounds and not constitute meaningful benefit. I think the next point you made was that PFS is on the rise. We use it much more often than we did before. The next point you made was that um, we are increasingly enamored by small differences in PFS and that we are increasingly powering trials to find smaller and smaller differences. Um, and then the final point you came to was this controversy of whether or not PFS is intrinsically meaningful to patients or merely a conveniently measurable surrogate endpoint. And in you're saying when you guys do focus interviews, it is abundantly clear patients care about living longer and living better, and they could care less what CAT scans look like in a radiologist's office. But you look at the literature, and then you're saying that the literature says otherwise, says patients care about PFS. So where's the discrepancy? That, that's a perfect summary. Okay. So we did a standard systematic review. We identified 17 studies mm -hmm. with 3,600 patients with advanced malignancies. And additional to pulling out the usual demographics and the reported outcomes, we were very interested in how the authors uh, and designers of the study defined PFS for patients. Mm -hmm. So we specifically evaluated eight points that we thought were crucial for patients to know if they were truly able to be able to understand PFS. Okay, good. What so are the eight points? Yeah. Eight points. When the investigators described PFS to patients, did they use the specific term progression-free survival? Okay. When a patient hears progression and they hear survival, it's very difficult, I believe, for them to process anything else. Okay. The next point is very similar. If they didn't use the word progression-free survival, did they tell the person in the definition the word survival? Because we believe that patients will latch onto that. And whatever you tell them next, they'll believe that the treatment might improve survival. Third point. Did the investigators explain that progression-free survival includes, as you've said, both progression or death? Right. Fourth, did they explain to patients that progression-free survival benefit may not reflect how well you feel? Right. Fifth, did they explain that all progression does not necessarily require treatment? Right. Sixth, did they define what constitutes progression? Did they tell the patient that all this means is that it's crossed an arbitrary threshold of growing by 20% on the um, uh, scans. Right. And seventh, did they balance the progression-free survival against overall survival? For example, did they say your progression-free survival may be 
X amount of months, but your overall survival will not change. Okay. Um, and those were the points that we assessed. I believe I said eight, but I actually think we did seven. <laughs> seven. Okay, tell me the seven again. <laughs> so use the term PFS. Okay, right. So use the term PFS and then say the second. Use the word survival. Okay. Explain that PFS could include progression or death. Right, right. Composite. Explain that PFS may not reflect how well you feel. Right. That's important to, because people in their mind, they think, oh, I progress. I must feel worse. But that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, exactly. And as you can see from the, the supplementary table, often the descriptions to patients say it will slow down progression or it will stop you from get your cancer from getting worse. And who wouldn't want their cancer not to progress? And who wouldn't want their cancer not to get worse? I was going to come to that. I, what that means. I'm reading supplemental table one and getting angrier and angrier <laughs> because I think it's suboptimal. Okay. So it will come to that. Okay. So that, okay. Yeah. So then uh, that you don't always feel worse. That all progression does not require treatment. Uh, that's a great point, which is that we often watch someone with slow progression for a while, especially if they're asymptomatic, give them a treatment holiday. Um, and we know in many circumstances that um, you can continue to treat, but you don't improve overall survival. You just add therapeutic burden. Exactly. Yeah. The next was, did they define what they meant by progression give some clarity to the fact that it just means that it's grown by the arbitrary 20% arbitrary or 20% more. right and the last one is did they give you something to compare progression free survival to did right. they tell you mm -hmm. no matter what this treatment does your overall survival will not change right and also like progression free survival we're talking about 3 to 5 months but your overall survival is like 18 to 56 months or something like that you know it can often be exactly. very different yeah okay great exactly. so i think that's a great set of things that when you really understand the concept you would know those things Mm -hmm. Okay. We, we think those are crucial for you to be able to say that you understand and your value and endpoint. You have to truly understand what it is. Wonderful. Okay. Okay. So tell me what you find. So there's there's several important findings that we found. So I'd say first, as we'll talk about in a bit, the one of the most striking findings was that the definitions and specific words that investigators used to describe PFS to patients was markedly different across the studies, and we felt that this finding parallels and highlights the difficulty that clinicians have in routine clinical practice of accurately describing treatment benefits to patients when the only established benefit is in progression-free survival. Mm -hmm. How can you tell a patient that X drug is going to improve? Well, let's take almost any drug now that's been approved, any right. of the new breast cancer drugs. Right. This drug is going to improve your progression-free survival, but we don't know that it's going to help you live any longer. That just sounds crazy. Yeah. It just makes you seem like you don't know what you're talking about as an oncologist. I think so, yeah. The second important finding we found is that although most studies attempted to pilot test the definition, meaning they described in their methods that they would sit down a group of five or so patients or five or so physicians and see, do you understand what we mean when we're trying to assess progression-free survival? It is very apparent that the patients did not. Um, and there's one really eye-catching quotes from one of the papers yeah. um, that I'll find where um, it specifically says, let me get this for you here. So there's only one study, uh, there was one study, pardon me, uh, by Bridges et al., which really showed you that patients, for the most part, didn't understand the progression-free survival definition despite pilot testing. And they specifically said, and I quote, Patients indicated in pre-test interviews that they best understood the meaning of progression-free survival as time to disease progression. Patients were unaware of the statistical difference between these two clinical measures. Hmm. Wow. You know, the, the reason why patients probably didn't understand the definition of PFS is because 
studies did not routinely define what was meant by progression. They did not define that progression may not be associated with any improvement in symptoms or how one feels. And they didn't necessarily describe that longer PFS may not translate into longer overall survival. Yeah. Let me let me jump in on this table one. Okay. Okay. So this is this I think this is right up what you're saying right now. So I, supplemental table one listeners must take a look at. This is called descriptions used for progression free survival in these papers. So these are papers by Gonzalez and Jenkins and Lee and Park. These are all the papers you're you're sort of meta analyzing or systematic reviewing. Um, and mm-hmm. here's what they say. This is the definition of progression free survival. Quote. One of the most important goals of cancer medicine is to keep the cancer from getting worse. Oh, that's already kind of walking them down the path that this is going to... Are you out of your mind? Let them decide what the goal is. One of the most important goals of cancer medicine is keep the cancer from getting worse. The medicine may help for a while, but it may stop working at some point. The cancer will grow again. Medicines for metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer can help people live longer and keep symptoms from getting worse. Uh, Again, that misses the fact that PFS and that disease is probably largely driven by radiographic progression. It's not even captured in that. Okay. The benefit of chemotherapy is measured in progression-free survival or the time a person spends without any sign of her cancer growing or coming back after finishing treatment. Er, That's incorrect. You can have slow-growing tumor for a whole long time. As long as you don't pass 119%, you don't have progression. Um, The time cancer-free, it's not cancer-free. You can have visibly measurable cancer and still have not progressed. So that's incorrect. Sorry, Havrilski. Um, Jenkins. The length of time treatment would continue controlling cancer. That's the quote. That's incorrect. Incorrect. Uh, it is not the length of time. It's controlled. Uh, it can progress and still not require treatment. It can be growing and not progress. So that's incorrect. Um, Park. Progression-free survival represents the efficacy of the anti-cancer drug. That's incorrect. That's assuming that it's a measure of efficacy. It's no such thing. Um, approximately overall survival get oh overall survival is approximately 2.5 times PFS. Where, where do they pull that from? Never heard. I of it. have no idea. <laughs> okay, that's 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 just completely make believe. That's it's, it varies in many many different tumors, and and uh, and that is not something you can say. Um, Mansfield, the average time the medicine will work. Uh, I- incorrect. Uh, it's the uh, of course we've already discussed this. Um, an important goal of cancer medicine is to keep your cancer stable, keep it from progressing or getting worse. Um, again, they're assu- they're imputing the value to the patient. The goal of the cancer medicine is to live longer, live better, and whether or not it keeps it stable as the mechanism that's that's one possibility. Um, there's another one that I thought was really jumped out at me. Huh. How long the medicine will keep the cancer from getting worse? Uh, no, that's not a good definition. The minimum extension of time which the tumor does not grow. Incorrect. It can be growing and for a long period of time, just constantly being measured and growing, but not tip over progression threshold. So I think that these are just lousy definitions, aren't they? I, I, I think so. I think it's hard to assess if someone values something if you can't really explain to them clearly so that they understand it. But Michael, let me ask you this. You, you are 100% right that they are not explaining it to the patients adequately. And if the patient does not adequately understand the concept, they cannot understand how much they really value it. But do the investigators understand the concept? That is a million dollar question. And I would hope that the investigators understand progression-free survival and I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But I do harbor some sneaking suspicions that many really excellent oncologists yes. and researchers yes. do not fully understand what progression-free survival means. Yes, I harbor that that doubt as well. Okay, so so okay, so I think this is one of the first causes of concerns, which is you're saying 
that when you do your focus group, people are clear what they want. When you look at the literature, it appears PFS is something that people care a great deal about. But then when you start to review the literature in detail, you are not very satisfied that the people who are being queried about their views and preferences of PFS are actually being explained what PFS means and what it doesn't mean. That Exactly. And it brings up one of the most important next points about all of these studies, which I, I, I believe you'll be on board with uh, as raising a very significant red flag, and that is the majority of these studies were directly sponsored by a pharmaceutical company. Oh, well, and, well, well. And the reason we thought that this was alarming is because the pro- because of the prominent role that PFS plays in modern-day regulatory approval, it's important to consider that having a pharmaceutical company sponsor these trials is a potential source of bias when interpreting the tr- these results. And it's especially important uh, because it is clear from the studies identified that the varying way in which the trade-off questions are asked or the very way in which progression-free survival is defined can significantly influence the way that preferences are expressed. Wow. I think um, you are, you're really hitting the nail on the head, which is that uh, the industry has a huge incentive to use this endpoint for, f- for a couple of reasons. One, because it is more readily assessed than endpoints that really matter. Uh, two, because it's more easily gameable. You know, this, can, this endpoint can be gamed ver- through differential sensoring and all sorts of other strategies, um, the re- frequency with which scans are done, all sorts of ways in which PFS can be gamed. Um, three, uh, it, you, can, you can really improve PFS but not make people better off. Uh, and so it lowers the bar to declare yourself a success and you can make a lot of money if PFS is in vogue. And so you have the same companies that are making a lot of money from the use of PFS uh, telling us that patients really like PFS, but they're doing so through methods that are that, you know, ensure they're going to get the answer they want. These are self-fulfilling prophecies. If you tell somebody one of the most important goals of cancer medicine is to keep the cancer from getting worse on a CAT scan. And this is something, and PFS is a measure of cancer getting worse on a CAT scan. Do you value it? But you've already told them that that's the important measure. You're not asking them what they value, and 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 in fact, that's not the important measure. So I think you're really you're really onto something here. That this is maybe even some of this literature might be considered seeding literature. It's literature that's you know it's it's seeding the industry views in the biomedical literature and not really telling us some truth about the way the world works. I would agree. I, I think that. Um, there's a tremendous importance in understanding patients' preferences and values for determining any treatment strategy mm-hmm. in oncology, any treatment strategy in medicine. Of course. So I think these studies are incredibly important, but they have to be held to the same methodological rigor as a, a randomized controlled trial. You know, we can't say just because it's a qualitative assessment that we can lower the bar. It's important stuff, and I think we have to do this research properly. Wonderful. So. Um, in the time we have remaining, tell us about the the last table, table three. This is about the the um, the way in which the way in which people relatively rank the importance of different attributes. Yeah. So the one thing I'll point out to listeners uh, who are not familiar with time trade off methodology and discrete uh, and discrete choice experiments is that it's very important to know that cross-trial comparison is not appropriate. Um, And that's because the preference weights that patients assign to these various attributes can only meaningfully be interpreted relative to the other attributes included in the regression model. So for that reason, we didn't quantitatively aggregate the data, but we've just presented the data from each study 
so people can get an, a sense of a few trends. The important trends that you'll see as you go through table number three is that when PFS is the only efficacy endpoint you can choose, patients are going to always rank it as the most important endpoint. That makes sense. The only thing that's positive of all the attributes we're going to give you is that, hey, this cancer, the, uh, the treatment rather, will improve your progression-free survival. So patients will always choose that as the most important attribute. Mm. And when you go down through the table and you go specifically into cohort number three, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that we've shown you all the studies where PFS was balanced and contrasted against overall survival. And when the patients can, can choose overall survival, they always chose overall survival as the most important attribute, and progression-free survival took on relatively less meaning. I see. And this shows, this we felt showed further support to the fact that patients were not really understanding what progression-free survival meant because when you contrasted it against overall survival, they said, oh, okay, overall survival, that clearly is the most important value to me. Mm -hmm. There are a couple other points that we that you can uh, identify going through this table. Now, the majority of the studies did, in fact, come from the United States, but there are a few studies from Asia um, and interesting, we found that perhaps there might be some differences uh, in the way that ethnic and racial minorities um, express their preferences and their values. Mm -hmm. and th the studies in the United States were the only study that commented on race, um, and they overwhelmingly represent underrepresented non-white patients. 92%, mm. I believe, uh, of these studies included white patients. And I think that's important because if... Patients' preferences and values are colored by their personal experiences, their cultural background. Um, and so we need to make sure that the patients we're sampling are representative of the diverse population of patients we care for. That's well put. You know, I, I also wonder about socioeconomics. You might not know, but, you know, from what socioeconomic strata are these research participants generally coming from? They probably didn't report in all these papers. It, it's, you know, it's an excellent question. They didn't report in this paper. But one of the things we specifically commented on, I believe in table one, is how you recruit these people. Yes. Because how you recruit people to the study is a major source of potential sampling bias. And sometimes, and often what they did was they would use an online research agency that would go to like Kidney Cancer Canada and, and pull those patients. Oh dear. And that may be very different than the, the population in general of patients with kidney cancer. Of course. You know, I think this is a major... Um, I, I guess I'd say I want to I want to put this just right, which is that uh, it is it is very important, and we are very grateful that there are some patients who are very active and vocal on, be it patient groups or social media websites. But it is equally important to realize that a lot of people who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis are not the kinds of people who choose to be so vocal and participatory. And they would prefer to be more reticent and perhaps more focused on, on their own family and their own lives. And, you know, they're different people in the world. And I think we overall, whenever it's an article I read about a new cancer drug or it's, um, you know, who goes to testify at drug advisory committee meetings or something we published a few years ago, we are disproportionately hearing from a certain type of person who may have a certain personality, who may participate in certain groups, and may have certain values and preferences. And we are ignoring a large number of people who do not choose to participate in these same activities. And the reason as a doctor you're always struck by this is when you hear a narrative that, well, patients want 
a five-day improvement in PFS or something like that, which I often can read about in, you know, the latest new drug. Patients are patients were clamoring at the meeting for this this five-day improvement. Then I go to my clinic and I start talking to just people who are uh, essentially randomly selected only by geography. They happen to live in this area or in the VA where it's just truly randomly selected from the you know, people who live in this area. Um, and you start asking those people in your clinic and you're hearing something so different, which is, you know, get the hell out of here. I don't want that. You know, you're like, like, what are you talking about? Five day PFS. It doesn't make me, you don't know if it makes me live longer. You crazy doctor. You know, you hear these kinds of things. And so some of us struggle with, and we are desperate for, we crave a really broad representative, both racially, socioeconomically, personality, culturally, um, just a, a survey of what do actual people dealing with this want, need, understand, you know, we really have, I don't think we've ever seen such a thing. I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, if you ever saw a randomized control trial that only took people from the highest socioeconomic status or only took patients uh, of one ethnic or racial or religious background, you'd be up in arms. Yes. Because we need to make sure that our trials and the patients who are enrolled to our trials or the patients who are enrolled to our qualitative studies are representative of the general patients who are seen in routine clinical practice. And if we don't, we're doing a tremendous disservice to our patients um, because the, the trials may not apply to how they, you know, to their personal values and preferences. Mm -hmm. So I guess you've you've done this project. This is a wonderful review. I think readers interested in this topic of what do what do patients really understand about PFS and what do they value? They're going to be drawn to this paper. But I, I hate to say this, but I feel like you have basically bl blown this whole field up. I mean, this is a field of nothing but, I would say, bad studies. Uh, maybe you're more polite than I. You're Canadian. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, I mean, I guess what you I guess you might put it to say this is a field of things that are not satisfying. And, and, and you're calling for more satisfying research in this space. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, uh, Dr. Brundage, the senior author of the study, and Andrew Robinson have just received a relatively large uh, CIHR, which is our national funding agency grant, in order to perform a multi-center perspective study in order to really truly understand using high quality methods how patients understand and value progression-free survival. And that is so important. And uh, I'm very grateful that um, that that you're all doing that that very important research up there in Canada. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and taking us through this paper. Readers will be able to find it now online in JAM Oncology on September 26th. And listeners who are interested in this kind of work can follow you on Twitter. Michael, what's your handle? It's at M Rafel MD. That's M R A P H A E L M D. And you want to follow Michael on Twitter. So thanks, Michael, for joining. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>